this is the first episode of Media Files, a podcast about the emerging themes and issues in the Australian media and how they affect us. I'm Andrew Dodd, the Director of the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, and I'll be joined by co-hosts Matthew Rickardson from Deakin University and Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. And today, Andrea joins me in a discussion about the merger of Channel 9 and Fairfax Media, the biggest media merger in 30 years, and the culmination of the deregulation of Paul Keating's cross-media ownership rules. We were recently joined in a forum at the University of Melbourne by Stephen Main of The Main Report, Eric Beecher, the publisher of Crikey, and ABC financial journalist Alan Kohler. They all had their own reactions to the merger. For Andrea, it did not come as a surprise. Inevitable, I suppose. My research is focused on investigative journalism, which has involved Fairfax. And I just thought it was kind of inevitable because you've got two moribund news organisations, legacy organisations that um, need to develop, uh, build capital, get more reach. And this is the consolidation pattern that is occurring across other developed economies. Um, It doesn't mean I thought it was a good thing. But I wasn't surprised by it. Inevitable, Eric? Yeah, I didn't hear there was a merger. I heard there was a takeover. Uh, So (laughs) maybe there was another story. Um, And when I heard, I mean, those of us in the media had been aware for at least 18 months that Fairfax was trying to sell itself um, because that was their strategy. They didn't have another strategy apart from domain. And I can understand that. I'm not being critical of it. I mean, in a commercial sense, they had nowhere to go, particularly once they'd split domain off. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, all the things Andrea said are right. Obviously, uh, if you have a a business uh, that's predominantly uh, revenues from print media, from newspapers, which is what the Fairfax business is when you strip out domain, it's still 60-odd percent from from print media. Um, And those revenues are falling, you know, between 10 and 25 percent a year. Uh, Obviously, you don't have, you know, anywhere to go, and so I wasn't surprised. Alan? Uh, well, like Eric and Andrea, I'm not surprised at all. I suppose my reaction was that it was um, uh, better than the last two takeovers of Fairfax, um, <laughs> which was Warwick Fairfax Jr. in 1987, uh, when I was running the Financial Review, and um, then Conrad Black um, in 91. So I thought, oh well, uh, nine's better than those two. Would have been better if it was Jeff Bezos, so we could link with Washington Post. Uh, or perhaps the, perhaps the Salzburgers or someone, but you know, uh, nine's okay, I thought. Well, I was the last person hired when Fairfax was in receivership before Conrad took it over, and Mike Smith said he'd better rush this through on a Friday afternoon because they're about to announce the sale. Um, I was, uh, Alan rang and told me because he wanted to have a chat on the phone about it. Um, I was shocked that Fairfax's name was disappearing. Uh, I was interested that it was. Uh, uh, a takeover by nine and the social issues often drive that. So 20% premium, we get all the jobs. We get to name the company. So that's, you know, the big egos of the people at nine spending their shareholders' funds to get all the jobs and have the takeover sort of thing. So I was interested in that. Surprised that Fairfax gave up the name in negotiations. Interested that it's a 3-3 board with no names, which is weird. Normally in the social issues with takeovers, you say who's on the board. So that's an ongoing negotiation, which would be very material to the outcome. Thought it was bad that Peter Costello was the chair because he's a partisan, doesn't like Fairfax. Should have a chair who likes the company, he doesn't. 
Um, and um, But at the end of the day, I think two plus two does make five because of domain and the marketing and the share prices all reflect that. Nine has held its price even though it's offered a premium. Fairfax has gone up, domain has gone up a bit today. So I think economically it makes sense. Brings forward the, the end of print because nine will be less sentimental. Print does have to go. Um, uh, but overall, anything which stops news getting bigger and stronger is good. So uh, the idea of a, of a strong, independent, second biggest player behind news is healthy, as long as it's got a board, which is fiercely independent, loves Fairfax and doesn't have patsies for the Murdochs and the Packers and all those sort of things, which is for too long dominated Australian media. So let's get this right. That was just your first impression, all of that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you packed a lot into a first impression. Um, so there are so many, so many aspects, of, aspects of this that we can talk about. We can talk about what it means for journalism. We can talk about what it means for the future of independent sort of journalism in Melbourne, how we as a community in Melbourne talk to ourselves. We can talk about the business aspects of it. But your point, Eric, where you characterise this immediately as a takeover, is it unquestionably a takeover or is the rhetoric around it being a merger, is there anything in that? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that it's a takeover. And I think the other point about that is uh, it has nothing, it has very little to do with journalism. I think journalism is just a byproduct in this whole thing. It's a media business deal where they'll try and obviously um, sell more advertising by putting properties together. As Stephen says, they'll probably close the, the newspapers, you know, they'll be unsentimental about that. And when that happens, the revenues from the old Fairfax bit will, will a lot of that will go, and therefore a whole lot more journalists will lose their jobs. I mean. A digital version of the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age can probably support a newsroom of 50 or 60, whereas the print version, even though it's in severe decline, supports a newsroom of whatever it is now, 150 or something. So I think journalism is going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be deep collateral damage for journalism as a result of this. It's got nothing to do with journalism. And as Stephen says, you know, whether it's the board, whether it's the nine culture, Journalism plays no part in any of that. Well, in fact, that was your point in your conversation piece, wasn't it, Andrew? Well, my particular interest on that piece was about investigative journalism. But there's a couple of strands to it, and that is, um, if you look at the market value of the newspapers, the big mastheads that are part of Fairfax, and keep in mind it owns 160 regional mastheads, the regional ones, Channel 9's not showing any interest in those. Hugh Marks has already made comments that they belong somewhere else, they're not a fit with this takeover deal. So if you look at the, the value of the Metropolitan Mastheads, I think when I last looked they were worth about 400 million. They're probably worth less than that now. 60% of Fairfax is invest, it owns domain. That's where the strength of the company is at the moment. Of course, it's been spun off um, as a separate entity. Uh, and that's what Channel 9's interested in and might keep the mastheads, one would think, because they help support the advertising that goes with domain. But then when you look at the um, report, annual report that came down um, yesterday, it showed that that was the weakest component of the domain business at the moment is the print component. So. Uh, my big concern is that Fairfax has a six, seven decade history of investigative journalism that is expensive type of journalism that requires commitment. Uh, it requires having editors that are committed to litigation if that is the case. And Channel 9 um, doesn't have that history of investigative journalism, at least not this century. It did perhaps towards the end of 
late last century when 60 Minutes was still strong, when Business Sunday was strong. It hasn't had that sort of history since. And I think the cultural fit is not a great one in terms of that quality, long form um, investigative journalism. Alan, it's undoubtedly, in your view, a takeover? Of course, yeah, it's a takeover. Uh, and Stephen pointed out, I mean, when it's, it's uh, Nine buying Fairfax, the Fairfax name disappears, Nine gets the jobs, CEO and chairman. So it's a takeover and, I, you know, a lot of people are mourning the, the loss of the Fairfax name. I don't, I mean, personally, I'm, you know, I don't think that's a big loss, but the question is whether the corporate culture is important. Uh, it's not so much the, the brand of Fairfax, because Fairfax itself is not a brand, it's not a name that kind of means much, but the, the culture of Fairfax uh, does mean a lot and has meant a lot. Um, I mean, obviously the culture has been damaged severely ever since uh, Warwick Jr. made that takeover offer in uh, made that takeover in 1987, and, you know, and then it was receivership, then Conrad Black, and you know this constant sort of um, debacle <coughs> that's uh, overtaken it. But through that time, the the editors and journalists, I think, have preserved, have done a fantastic job of preserving that journalistic culture within Fairfax. And so the question now, and I don't think it's possible to answer it really. The question now is uh, to what extent will Nine's culture now finally remove that journalism that um, the editors and journalists within the Fairfax have managed to preserve through what's been going on in the last few decades and um, I, it's, it's hard to know. I mean I, I, suppose, I suppose on balance you'd be pessimistic about it given the way that Nine's journalism is now. You'd probably be reasonably pessimistic, as Eric says. It's not to do with journalism; it's about it's a business deal. Would you say it's as bad as Paul Keating has characterised it as a tabloid outfit from go to woe? Is that is that fair? Look, I'm not a. I don't watch the Channel Nine news every night. I watch it occasionally. My, most of my my consumption of my exposure to the current affair is through Media Watch on the ABC, <laughs> which is about all I could take, to be honest. But um, so it, it seems bad. I mean, it seems. Like, they don't care about stuff. It they, they seems like they don't care about the truth much. Stephen, do you have a view about how the Nine takeover could affect the Fairfax culture? Well, first I'm going to contest that it's a strict takeover because when Tabcor bought TATS, all the TATS people got shut down. The head office in Sydney, in Brisbane, got shut down and TATS got one person out of nine on the board. Fairfax Nine, it's a 3-3 split. Okay, yes, they've got chair and CEO, but three of, Nick Falloon, um, Jack Cowan, James Miller, Patrick Olway, Todd, Todd Sampson, Mishy Rosen, Linda Nichols, three of them are going on the board to represent Fairfax. So that is a 50-50 split. They've paid a premium for the name and the chair and CEO roles, but there's no controlling shareholder at nine. So no one's in charge. Bruce Gordon will be the largest shareholder. He's got 15% of nine. He'll have 8% of the joint entity, but no one's in charge. It's institutional. The shareholders can choose to change the board. The shareholders can put you know, Alan, Eric and I on the board and suddenly it's a Fairfax culture. It's a shareholder decision at the AGM. I'm running for the board coming up at the AGM. Well, I've got, I've got the news, date. <laughs> so um, to make this point about it, the board composition is a matter for the shareholders. Nine doesn't control anything because nine's not controlled by Kerry Packer. So, so the shareholders will decide on the board. So I won't get elected, but they might put some other luminaries on there who actually would be good for investigative journalism. And I'll argue for that. If they just put Peter Costello, who hates Fairfax, and a bunch of toe cutters. Yes, it's terrible for the future culture of investigative journalism. Do you really think that three uh, sympathetic people on the board could preserve the culture against all of that? And well, I think, I think Highwood needs a gig. 
I would need some sort of gig. I mean, who is running the newspapers? They haven't said, are they, they're not, they can't just sack them. Hugh Marks has never run a newspaper. You wouldn't say Highwood's a champion though for great journalism. I think, he's, I think he gets a bad rap because he had to cut the crap out of Fairfax to survive, but he understands investigative journalism and, and Alan's comment about surprised how it survived all that's happened. I think that Highwood is a much better friend of investigative journalism than many other options who are currently on that on that. But he's not going to get a gig in the new merged business. Well, there's been is he when ASX took over SFE, um, the shareholders said actually we'll have the other bloke as CEO, thanks, and they swapped it. So it's a matter for the shareholders. If the shareholders decide that Greg Highwood is actually better, no merger deal. What's can, your, can what's do your that. reading then of the shareholding? Would it entertain that idea for a moment? I think some billionaire will come along opportunistically, a Gina or a Twiggy or a Frank Lowy, because it'll be so power appetising. You know, here, all these radio, TV, and for a billion dollars, I can get 20% and I can be perceived to be in charge. You know, Stokes did that with Seven, Rupert. So I think very rarely does a trophy media share register remain untouched. I mean, you saw five billionaires squabbling over Channel 10. You know, the Canadians sold out and literally five of them were all in there. So I think it's a Monty for the Russian oligarch style, you know, I want to get power. Uh, Bruce Gordon's already increasing his stake. He hasn't got capacity to go to 20%. Probably, you, you've big. mentioned names like Clive Palmer and yeah. Gina Reinhardt. Yeah, uh, James Packer might suddenly so, get well and decide he wants to be a big player again, you know. So I think it's a Monty for that. Not exactly great friends of journalism. No, and that's the risk, is it's, it's, there's no champion of journalism who's going who's to do that either. So. The journalists have got to make a powerful argument that they can pay for themselves, they're great for the brand and they're, and they're a good business proposition and you shouldn't trash it. And that actually has been the way it's worked out. People trust the brands, it's reliable. All right, so let me go back to the question that we came to this on. So is the culture of Fairfax, the culture that Alan is worried about disappearing, the threat to that is real, isn't it? It is real, but did Fairfax change the culture of 2GB when they took that over? No, they said that works we'll leave it, leave it be. And Alan Jones and Ray Hadley are totally non-Fairfax culture and they totally do exactly the same thing after the takeover. Neil Mitchell, Tom Elliott, they're not Fairfax culture, they're all right-wing shock jocks. There is another dimension to this though, and that is that with the successive job cuts that have been going on wave after wave, the biggest in 2012, with 1,900 jobs lost from Fairfax, they've managed to do a series of adaptations to maintain their investigative journalism. And one of those has been these collaborations and partnerships with the ABC. And um, they were at the forefront really, in terms of nations looking to doing collaborations with media rivals and also with non-media organisations and they've won a series of Walkley Awards for some of those which have led to, as we know, the Banking Royal Commission, the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sex Abuse. How is that collaboration going to continue when you've got Channel 9 now wed to Fairfax? Is there going to be room for the ABC to still be a partner? And I would think that those sort of collaborations are looking pretty dim. If it's free publicity for Fairfax journalism and you know you, you do it. I think they've, they've got a track record in doing it. Fairfax has shown with all those good people who've gone to the Guardian that if you don't look after your good people and give them platforms and maximise them, them go, they'll get poached and you'll lose them. So I think they've got an interest in keeping their best journalists. But this goes back to platforms. Eric's point that it's not actually about the journalism so much. I know journalism can be good for brand, but primarily it's about real estate and cross-promotion of domain with a whole heap more home improvement shows that we're going to see on Channel 9. 
And this brings us to the idea of scale, this suggestion that by creating a company that's worth $4 billion rather than $2 billion, you've got a better chance of taking on a $70 billion company like Facebook. I, I don't quite see the logic of that, how doubling your size. Sorry, $700 billion. So how does, how does doubling in size against a behemoth actually give you scale? It's hard to tell. I, I'm not, I, I can't disagree with it. I, I, I'd be very surprising if nine agreed to. Uh, the journalists on The uh, Age and the Sydney Morning Herald partner with, with the ABC. That'd be surprising. I don't think it's, it's completely out of the question. If it remains worth $2 billion, REA's worth 11.5. The real estate market is so huge that the real estate agents will not allow news to have a monopoly. They'll just keep, you know, the, the mail will go well. But it doesn't fund any journalism. Right, a bit of property journalism. I mean, do you watch Sky Business? It's full of property journalism now, which is just News Corp took control of Sky News, Sky Business, and started loading it up with uh, real estate um, programming to cross-promote cross um, REA. So that's an example of the downside of this deal. I think the biggest problem is that, that there isn't, as far as I can see, any part of Nine Fairfax that's going to grow. I'm, I'm having trouble seeing any, any bit of it now, including Domain and Stan. Stan. Stan will probably grow. Stan is growing. Stan but it's small. Stan is like, firstly, Stan's not journalism. And it's kind of, um, but it's, it, it's, a, it's a distant number two to Netflix. Eric? So I think this discussion is kind of what I would call micro. And I think you just need to go a bit more macro. And the macro story to me is really straightforward. About 10 years ago, or eight or nine years ago, everything changed. The business model that supported journalism fell apart. And that's because the internet stole everything, but particularly the classified ads. Like when Alan and I were editors at Fairfax back in the 80s, you know, we, well, the Sydney Morning Herald was making $100 million a year. The Age was making $100 million a year, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. And they were prepared to, in a sense, indulge the idea of journalism. I mean, it gave them a warm inner glow. It was controlled by a family. Uh, there was no interference. The culture was based on the fact that they had all this money. All that money has gone. It'll never come back. It's, go it's still declining really, really rapidly. And so a deal like this is purely about business. You know, obviously there's no journalism culture at nine, and there won't be any left, in my view, at Fairfax. Not because people don't want it, not because the journalists don't want it, not because the editors don't want it, but because the economics of the media business is solely about cutting costs, trying to get the revenues where you can, getting scale, getting synergies, that's what it's all about. And at every stage, once this happens, you know, once or twice a year, they will confront what Fairfax has been confronting for the last six or seven years, which is we have to cut our costs. That's the only way they can, it's a public company, it's owned by institutions, the directors have a fiduciary duty to deliver profits. They have no duty to journalism, zero. And even if they put people like the people Stephen suggested, even the three of us on the board, our fiduciary duty, if we were on that board, was to the, is to the profitability of the shareholders, not to the journalism. And so I just think that's inevitable and it's happening all over the world. But don't you think there's some brand strength in having quality journalism? But it doesn't matter what I think. I mean, it doesn't matter what we think. Of course, we, we feel well, strongly it, about it. It's written up in the annual reports. Of course, but that's just spin. I mean, there's been more spin out of Fairfax in the last couple of years than most of the spin they're supposed to cover. Well, I pay 60 bucks a, 60 bucks a month for the AFR online. I never read the print version. 
Yes, there'll be smaller newsrooms, but surely good journalism, as we've seen with Wall Street Journal, digital subs, um, you've all been in the subscriptions free trial. The Wall Street Journal is, whatever you think of Rupert Murdoch, the Wall Street Journal has, and the New York Times and now the Washington Post have owners who are committed, like the Fairfax family was, to journalism. Do you think that the nine media conglomerate owned by institutions is going to be committed to that? Why would they? The, well, without those owners, those papers, including the journal, wouldn't do that. So they'll have the same view as Stan. If we're growing subscribers, we'll invest in it. So they'll bundle up the age and Stan and this and that and put a big package together and, and you know, hopefully more people will subscribe to support it. But that is the point, though. If the world wants journalism, they're going to have to pay for it. Yeah. And that's really it. And at the moment, they're not paying enough for it. That's kind of... And it needs stand. to be unique. It needs to be something that isn't general, generic news that you can get for free from the ABC. Yeah. Free, as in taxpayer-funded. Well, yes, but see, the basic problem is it's not just the fact that classified advertising went online, which is obviously the first thing that happened, but subsequently to that, what's happened is this explosion of free content, which is quite sort of adequate. I mean, there's so much free stuff available. It's not just on Facebook. I kind of look around for links all the time for the constant investor. I do links for my subscribers and want, don't want to link to things that are subscription-based because they can't... I don't know whether anyone's a subscriber to it. So every, I mean, every week I'm running 50 links to really high-quality content, good stuff that's free. People will pay for it like they pay for your site and, why, and the reason why they pay for the Financial Times in London and why they pay for the Wall Street Journal because it is high-quality journalism that's harder to get in the free environment. That's what I'm saying, exactly. That's, what I, that exact, that's exactly what I'm saying. But you're just making the case for the fact that commercial journalism, no matter how unique it is, um, is a, an incredible struggle. Well, I think they're niche. That's why they succeed. They're not general news. But investigative journalism's niche as well. I, I, I don't think the Wall Street Journal and the FT are examples because they deliver information that people can make money off and they're investors, number one. And number two, most people claim get it paid for on their business accounts or claim the tax deduction. So it's very different. I want to change the subject just slightly. I want to touch off another aspect of this merger, and that is the, the talk, perhaps the vain hope, that Rod Sims and the ACCC might actually block this. Is that just why I don't, hope? I don't understand why that's a hope. I mean, Fairfax is in trouble. It's, it's got to be taken over by somebody. It's certainly a hope of groups like the MEAA who are looking at this and just with alarm. But Alan's right. I mean, what would happen to Fairfax if it, w if it didn't go ahead? I mean, the MEAA is not going to buy it. Yeah, well, that's, that's Hugh Mark's view that to, to, you know, and also Greg Highwood's that to save this outfit it needs to merge. I get that. But the question I'm asking is, is the speculation that the ACCC could block this a realistic one or not? Well, then the price goes down and Regina Reinhardt buys it. I mean, wouldn't that be great? It, it, it won't happen, but I, I, like in the UK where they mandate things about Sky News has to be separate and has to be independent, I hope the ACCC negotiates something around, you know, you won't cease daily print publication before the end of 2020, you will sign the charter, you will, you will the board will formally support the charter of non-independence, you know. Does the ACCC involved, have that capacity? Well, not. They haven't used it before in a media type situation. But often, you know, governments, because there's no FERB side of this, there is no sort of government condition they can whack on it. But I, I'd like to see some conditions on it. And some, you know, you've got to front, tell us who's on the board. You know, I mean, I, I've never seen a merger where it's, you don't know who the directors are. It's just bizarre. So um, it can't be blocked, but 
There was a good point in the Fin Review the other week about the 5-4 rule. You've got to have five voices in the, in the metros and four in the regions. And this limits the options of everyone else on 5-4. Because yep. if you want to do a merger in Adelaide, you know, news can't take over Channel 7 because it goes 4-3. Because this takes Adelaide down to five, from 5 to 4. So if diversity has only got uh, limited contractions under the 5-4 rules, then this is actually a sort of takeover I like because it's not news getting bigger and swallowing seven, which would for me be a disaster, given you see the way Rupert recklessly runs runs his power. So this is a better deal as long as the nine culture doesn't ruin Fairfax. So if we pull the lens back a little bit, the problem here is really about public policy and not having a government that has a commitment to media diversity and good quality journalism. And the seeds for this deal obviously were sown last year when Mitch Firefield got through the breaking of the two out of three rule, which allowed for this takeover to occur. It was limited before that you could only have two markets out of three, radio, television or print, not all three. Now that's not the case. And the victims that are really going to come out of this is going to be local journalism and regional Australia. And also because Fairfax owns so many of these regional newspapers that might just fold, um, they've already been heavily syndicated. The other thing that I think we will see more of is more Sydney-centric news, as you get more consolidation of the newsrooms between um, The Age, Sydney Morning Herald and Channel 9. It's going to be $50 million worth of costs. Some of those, I know they're saying they won't come out of the newsrooms, but there will be some crossover. And I think like the ABC, you'll end up with more Sydney-centric news. And what does that mean for the rest of Australia? Especially when you've got a conservative government like you have in um, the UK and like was occurring in um, Canada that attacks the public broadcaster and reduces its funding. And that has been the alternative to providing news and more diversity out into the regions. Well, though, I think it's really interesting because the optimism that we're talking about is based on the, the flowering of what you might call broad journalism that isn't like the, the, the broadening of the definition of journalism has occurred. Like everybody's a journalist. Um, there's, everyone's, everyone's posting stuff. There's just this colossal amount of diversity. It's true what Stephen says. We've got The Guardian, we've got uh, New Daily, we've got all this stuff going on. There's tons of stuff going on. The journalism that we're kind of mourning is based on at least an oligopoly, possibly a cartel of control by a certain, a few publishers who controlled the means of production um, and uh, therefore had the, the money, that the $100 million coming in that Eric talks about, um, now that's being dispersed. People are kind of providing stuff for nothing. So the, the oligopoly that, that funded journalism before has finished, right? There's consequences for that. The, the, sort, of, the, the sort of investigations that used to occur that don't pay any, don't pay probably may not happen or maybe maybe they will if people pay. So, so the great media oligopolies have been busted um, and there's kind of good news, there's good things about that but there's also some problems. I mean I, I will talk about media part if you like because it's a really good segue so I've just uh, been to a few places including Paris um, where there is a, a 10 year old digital publication called Media Part the most inspiring journalism enterprise I've ever seen in my life or heard of um, and spent some time there. And it only covers um, French national politics and does investigative journalism. Uh, they also do quite a bit of curation, the kind of thing Alan was just talking about. So they give their audience, uh, they, they can cover the world and cover France without having to 
expend a whole lot of their resources just on reporters covering the news. Um, it's a subscription only um, model. Uh, it was set up by two senior editors from Le Monde 10 or 11 years ago, disaffected by what was happening to uh, the French media for French journalism. Uh, their charter and their, and their uh, sort of mandate is incredibly idealistic, but it's worked. So, for example, they take no advertising. Their view is that the only people that can buy media part are the subscribers. They're now up to 160,000 subscribers. Uh, they're doing about 15 million euros of revenue a year. They're making a profit. They never uh, pay dividends. The profit stays in the business to grow it. Um, it's privately owned and the, and the staff are big shareholders in it. Um, and they're breaking big stories uh, and they're making a huge impact. And so I'm not, I don't think that model um, transplanted to Australia nationally would necessarily work. It's a different society, a different culture. France has about 70 million people, I think, or something like that. Um, but what it does show, I also went to Axios in Washington, and they've, they're a one-year-old startup, almost profitable. Both Axios and Mediapart have newsrooms of close to 100 journalists full-time. And what it shows is that if you can, in a sense, reinvent journalism for, you know, whether it's a city or a country or the niches that, you know, we've talked about, I think there's hope. But it's got to be based on uh, a business model. Eric Beecher, the publisher of Crikey, together with Stephen Main of The Main Report, Andrea Carson of La Trobe University and ABC financial journalist Alan Kohler. Media Files is a podcast produced in association with The Conversation. You can subscribe on iTunes or on Pocket Casts or at theconversation.com. Production Andy Hazel and thanks to Charlotte Grieve and Joe Chandler. I'm Andrew Dodd. See you next time on Media Files. Thank you.